Thurman outline says the bread of heaven on it. That would be great. There are some of you here that I do not know or I haven't met or I have forgotten. Either way, uh, I would love to meet you after the service. Uh, That would be great. My name is Dave Silvernail. I'm the pastor here. And uh, we are in the midst of the book of Exodus, a year-long trip in the Old Testament. And uh, we're traveling with the Israelites uh, in the desert. And they're just having a great time. So, uh, we're in Exodus chapter 16. You'll want to turn there in your Bibles. And uh, we're going to do the whole chapter today. It's sort of long, so we'll go through it as we go through the sermon. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And as always, we desperately need it. Teach us by it, humble our hearts, heal our distrust of your provision. Teach us to believe and to rest and to trust in your wisdom and in your kindness and in your generosity and your provision for our lives. These are standing challenges for us, even as they were for your people in Exodus. So by your word, instruct our hearts. Remind us that Exodus isn't just a history story, but a redemption story. And thank you that Exodus points us to our Redeemer. He is the bread of life, and we need what he offers. And so we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. There once lived a little girl who really, really liked stuffed bears. And in fact, one day when she and her parents were at the store, she saw the newest stuffed bear. And she thought, if I could only have this stuffed bear, my life would be fulfilled forever. So she made her desires known, but her parents said, I'm sorry, honey, that stuffed bear is outside our budget. We can't afford it. But you don't understand. It's not just the stuffed bear you're buying me. You're buying me happiness. You see, there's this little bear vacuum in my soul, and it will only be filled when you buy me this stuffed bear. And so her life motto became, my heart is restless, and it will only find its rest in this stuffed bear. So she waited a while and explained it to her parents, I really need this stuffed bear. My whole life is dependent on it. And once I get it, I promise, there'll be no more whining, no more complaining, no more crying, I will have found Fulfillment, I'll be content for the rest of my life. I promise. So her parents bought her the stuffed bear. And guess what? She found contentment. She grew up to be a fulfilled, grateful, and joyful woman. But the rest of her life didn't go so well. She married a lousy guy with whom she had uh, a few kids. And uh, then he left her, and the kids didn't stick around to help out. And when she got old, she went on social, social security. She hardly had any money, but she never whined or cried or complained. Instead, she would think, I remember that stuffed bear. What great joy and contentment I found in that stuffed bear. And just as she predicted, it brought her lasting satisfaction. She was content and grateful for the rest of her life. Does life ever work out like that? No. I mean, you think a kid would hear that story and say, wait a minute. You know, contentment, fulfillment, it doesn't come from a stuffed bear. I'm not getting suckered into that. But it does happen, doesn't it? She just moved on from the new stuffed bear to new clothes and new cars and new houses and new spouses. A never-ending search for fulfillment and contentment. And it's not just stuffed bears and little girls. It's tools or sports gear or uh, tech stuff for guys. As one woman said, boys don't change. Their toys just keep getting bigger and more expensive. So it's not a gender thing. It's a human thing of discontentment. Our culture is absolutely brilliant about exploiting our tendency towards dissatisfaction 
and promising us fulfillment. We get this, these messages all day, every day, just turn on your TV. Use me, buy me, eat me, wear me, try me, drive me, put me in your hair. Do you know there are over 430 types of shampoos on the market that promise hair contentment? You know, and they all say, buy me to wash it, condition it, mousse it, dry it, curl it, straighten it, wax it, rogaine it. And we're richer, healthier, better fed, better housed, better educated than any generation in the history of the world. But are we any wiser? Are we more content? How many of us can honestly say, I am absolutely content with my body, my car, my spouse, my kids, my house, my job, my friends, my walk with God. How many of us visibly and verbally are discontent with ourselves, our families, our income, our lives? Discontentment and her children complaining and grumbling are serious temptations for God's people. You know, you think in light of God's amazing grace that discontentment and her children wouldn't be a serious temptation, but they are. And they are today, uh, and they were some 3,400 years ago when God led Israel out of Egypt. In Exodus 14, just two chapters ago, we saw the exodus of Israel out of Egypt by God's incredible power. And then last week you heard Mark preach on Exodus 15, and Moses and Miriam sing this uh, great song about God's glory and grace, and it's awesome. But then starting in Exodus 15, 22, all the way through chapter 17, verse 7, God has led the people out, and he leads them into the wilderness. And first they go to a place called Marah. They need water. They find water, but the water's bitter. And so they grumble against Moses. So Moses goes to God. God says, take a piece of wood, chuck it in the water. He did. The water is sweet, meets their need. God then led them to Elam, and there was trees and pools of water. And God met their needs, but did it help? In the rest of this passage, the word grumble, referring to the attitudes and actions of Israel against God and against Moses, it's used nine more times. Now, whenever the writers of Scripture repeat something, it means it's important. And when they repeat it nine times, it means it's really important. Notice what the writer of Scripture is communicating about the people of Israel. We start at verse 1. Exodus 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which, and that's not a theological thing, it's just similar to Sinai. It's between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So they've been out there about six weeks. And it continues, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So first, they couldn't get water, so God gave them water. Then they grumbled and complained because there's no food. So you know what? God gives them a daily happy meal of quail and manna. God meets their needs. What's the author trying to show us? Here are the children of Israel out in the desert, and even though God continued to meet all their needs, all they do is grumble and complain. I love that word grumble. It actually sounds like it's meaning. You know, it's one of those words, grumble, and you kind of know right away what this is about. And so they grumble, they complain, they quarrel, they test God. And they're never content regardless of what he did or how he provides for them. Now, I believe this is a growing problem in our society. And I think it's a growing problem in the church. Back in 1991, Robert Hughes, who's actually an Australian art critic living in America, wrote a book about America called The Culture of Complaint. And Hughes says, 
uh, there, and I'm quoting, he sees a hollowness at the cultural core, a nation obsessed with therapies and filled with distrust of formal politics, skeptical of authority and prey to superstition, its language corroded by fake pity and euphemism. And while that, at least to me, sounds remarkably current, he wrote it 25 years ago. And his thesis is that we live in a culture in which we perceive ourselves as being entitled. And he's one of the first that said Americans suffer from an entitlement mentality. He says we're entitled to having all our wants and desires fulfilled as part of our American birthright. And when that doesn't happen, we develop a victim mentality and we grumble and complain. So I read that and I thought, is that ever true of us as Christians? Do we as God's people struggle with discontent or grumbling and complaining? Let's do a uh, spiritual inventory. Do any of these statements reflect you? I regularly wish I had a different job and possess a bad attitude at work. Or I'm disappointed in my relationships, whether my parents, spouse, friends, or kids, people don't meet my emotional needs. I deal with disappointment and discontent in my life by watching TV, shopping more than I should, viewing porn or with alcohol and drugs. I'm losing hope about my life and getting more cynical as I grow older. And I get ticked off at the good things people around me seem to have and enjoy. Any of those statements fit you? Author John Cheever, a great author, writes that the main emotion the average American feels is disappointment. And piggybacking on that, I think the main emotion the average American Christian feels, to uh, steal the title of Philip Yancey's great book, is disappointment with God. I mean, let's be honest. At times, we're all discontent with life and disappointed with God, and we show it by grumbling and complaining. So what do we do? What are our choices? Well, there's three doors that we can go through. Door number one, we can follow the example of the children of Israel and live in regular discontent with life and disappointment with God. We can choose to do that. That's actually not a good option. 1 Corinthians 10 uh, tells us, the Apostle Paul writes, looking back on this experience in Israel's history, says that God got tired of their grumbling and killed most of them out in the wilderness. They never get to see the promised land. The vast majority of people across the Red Sea, all but a couple, never get to the promised land. And I think Paul's telling us this attitude of grumbling and complaining and discontent leads to death, doesn't lead to life. Door number two, we can follow our culture and the cultural lie <coughs> of thinking that contentment comes from new things, new experiences, new jobs, new people. This option says we deal with discontentment by giving ourselves over to this never-ending quest for moments of happiness, by getting things, getting another vacation, getting a new job, getting a new spouse, getting a new hobby, a lot of people take this door, but it's also not a good option. It's a treadmill to nowhere. Or door number three, we can follow our Heavenly Father and learn to find contentment, fulfillment, satisfaction, not in ourselves, not in our own circumstances, not in anything we possess, but in God. St. Augustine lived at the end of the late 4th century. It's had a great impact on the development of Christianity. And St. Augustine said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O God. But you have to ask the question, what does that actually look like? What does that mean on a regular basis of going to work and raising kids and paying bills and being involved with the church? 
What does it look like to find contentment in the Lord? And I think Exodus 16 has some lessons for us. I think there were lessons God was trying to teach the Israelites and trying to teach us. And we have the opportunity to hear those lessons again and learn how to apply them. So let's turn to Exodus 16. And the first thing there we see is the grumbling against God. The grumbling against God. It says, They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. The thing I want you to see first is that the Lord takes the situation of difficulty and this attitude of complaint, and he uses it as an opportunity for discipleship. I mean, this is a genuinely difficult situation. They have every right to be concerned. Without water, their children and the weak and the elderly are extremely vulnerable to the hardships of desert life. And no wonder that people are concerned. Now they face food deprivation. It's a crisis situation. And God hears this situation of difficulty. He hears this attitude of complaint. And yet, here's where they go wrong. See, in this passage, even more so than in Exodus 15 in the passage about Marah, the grumbling of the children of Israel is clearly indicated to be against the Lord. They may verbally express it against Moses and Aaron, but over and over, God and Moses interpret this complaining to be a theological problem, a spiritual problem. It's reflected in the hearts of God's people. Their grumbling was against him. Their complaining is against him. They're questioning God's ability to provide. So God takes the situation of difficulty and this attitude of complaining, and he turns it into an opportunity for discipleship. That's what this passage is about. So here we see this bitter complaint, the children of Israel. Now I want you to understand again, Israel's grumbling against their leaders is actually distrust of God's wisdom and God's providence. They're questioning whether God will provide what they need. They're questioning the wisdom of God bringing them out into the wilderness. And they've been out of Egypt now for six weeks and all the problems are developing. It has not taken long for grumbling to take hold. In verse two, we see it's not an isolated incident of grumbling. Moses uses a more comprehensive phrase. It says, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled. Now, having been one on the other side of the whole congregation grumbling, I can tell you this is not a good time. You don't enjoy this. This is full-blown rebellion. Everybody is grumbling. This isn't, you know, uh, a dozen people causing a big fuss or even 10%, which would, in their terms would be huge numbers, you know. Uh, this is the whole congregation. It's pervasive grumbling. The people are running out of food and they have no idea where these provisions are going to come from and it, they uh, start doubting God's provision. We're told in verse 3, the complaints are directed against Moses and Aaron. And if you read that, it's actually, I think it's kind of funny. But, you know, that's the whole total depravity thing. Um, because they romanticize their slave life back in Egypt. And it looks wonderful. And they describe it in the most beautiful terms. They were slaves. It's like lower than poverty. They had nothing. They're abused. They're beaten. They're killed. It's 
awful. And yet, they begin to reimagine this life in Israel where they had all the meat they wanted. We sat next to meat pots. You know, we practically lived next to the palace. We had all the bread we wanted. You know, we could just eat until we got fat, at least in their memory. And not only did they uh, complain about not having enough food, they impute the worst sort of motives to Moses. You have brought us out in the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You want to kill us. We could have died a natural death in the land of Egypt. We would have lived to a grand old age and slipped away in our sleep one night. So good was life in Egypt. But no, you've brought us out here to die. So once again, the fears of the people of God, they're legitimate and their circumstances are hard, but their heart attitude is just awful. It's wrong. The rejection of Moses and Aaron is not just a rejection of their leaders, it's a rejection of God. And it's calling into question God's wisdom and God's providence. So that's the setting. The people are calling into question God's wisdom and God's providence. And so God says, this will be a great time for the people to learn about my wisdom and my providence. Now, that's probably not how I would have planned it. Let's see, I've gotten the congregation mad at me about X, so I'll teach them even more about X. Not the normal path ministers tend to take, but that's what God does. The people are grumbling about these things. They're calling into question my wisdom and my provision, so I'm going to teach them even more about my wisdom and provision. So look what he does. He demonstrates great patience. With all their grumbling, God doesn't punish them or smite them down. Uh, He responds kindly and generously with the promise of daily bread. And in verse 4, despite this bad attitude, this failing faith, he responds with kindness and generosity. He announces that he will rain bread on the people. Notice God's plan is to disciple them in his providence by providing daily bread. He's going to teach them day by day to trust his providence day by day by raining bread on them. And this story of the daily provision of bread may well be the uh, origin of Jesus' reference in the Lord's Prayer to give us this day our daily bread. You see what God's doing here. He's promising two things, food and rest. He addresses their hard attitude and their difficult situation. He's going to provide for their physical needs, and their spiritual needs, day after day. So here's how it goes. Six days a week, 312 days a year, for 40 years, he's going to give them bread. He's going to supply their physical need. And one day a week, 52 days a year, forever, he's going to supply their spiritual need by giving them time with him. He provides food and rest. And in this, he begins a plan of discipleship. He provides what they need, both physically and spiritually. And he wants them to know this is all his doing. The meeting of their physical need for food and the meeting of their spiritual need for rest are both the provision of God. Starting at verse 6, the provision of God. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord." Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. 
then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each of you as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it to the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted." So now Moses and Aaron take this message from God and they pass it on. And God is going to teach them that man cannot live by bread alone. That's the next great lesson of this passage. In verse 6, Moses and Aaron pass along the Lord's message. They even state the goal of the Lord's uh, plan of discipleship. God wants his people to know that he's the one who's brought them out of Egypt. He wants them to have an experiential knowledge of him, and this provision of daily food is designed to serve that purpose. And that evening when they gather, they will know that I am the Lord who has brought you out of Egypt. God's going to display his glory in his provision for his people. Now look at verse, verse 7. You have the first reference there, the first biblical appearance of the phrase, the glory of the Lord. And it's a phrase of tremendous significance and not just because it's the title of this sermon series. Moses makes it clear that in revealing his glory, God is revealing his essential character and nature by providing for his people. Moses makes it clear the people are grumbling against the Lord when they grumble against him. Verse 8, it's specifically announced the Lord's going to give them both meat and bread and it's reiterated again that God has heard their grumbling. Verse 9, they're called to draw near. And again, it's emphasized that the Lord has heard their grumbling. You know, this is kind of like an offended mom. He's talking to an ungrateful child who's announced he doesn't like her cooking. Well, you know how that's going to go. Well, since you don't like my cooking, you can go to your room. And since you don't like my cooking, you can do your homework. And since you don't like my cooking, you can't watch TV. And since you don't like my cooking, you can cook your own breakfast tomorrow. And on and on and on it goes. The point by this mom is being emphasized. Well, here the Lord is emphasizing that when his provision comes, they will know it's no accident. It's not going to be a coincidence the food just shows up tomorrow. It's because the Lord has heard their grumbling. It says that over and over again. But because of it, he provides. And then in verse 10, he manifests himself, his glory in the cloud. And as God provides for Israel's need with bread and with rest, he also shows them their need of him. He's teaching them that what you need most is not bread. You need me. I provide the bread. The bread comes from my hand. And I'm not just spiritualizing that. It's actually what Moses says in Deuteronomy 8. Just look at one verse there, verse 3. It says, He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You may have heard that before. Because that's what Jesus said during the temptation in Matthew 4 when Satan told him to turn those stones into bread. And he said, man does not live by bread alone. He quoted 
from memory, Deuteronomy 8.3. So even in the wilderness, even in the time of temptation, Jesus is determined to rely on the provision of the Lord rather than seeking it by his own means, showing his trust in the Lord, illustrating this principle that the Lord provides. That's the discipleship that God's giving to the people of Israel. It's not just they need food and food shows up, but that God is the provider of the food. God's providence is learned by the children of Israel through this daily uh, reenacted dependence upon him. Go on verses 11 and 12. And again, the Lord says he's heard the people's grumbling, and that grumbling is against him. This is the provision is being shown to be providential, not coincidence, and the danger of these people's grumbling is highlighted. You know, hopefully, it's dawning on you by now that grumbling against the Lord is not a good idea. Questioning God's wisdom and God's providence normally does not work out well for you. And as this phrase is repeated over and over and over, it's kind of like, you know, that teenager realizing, you know, I probably shouldn't have said that to mom. Because she repeated that phrase, since you don't like my cooking, four times. So the children of Israel are saying, write this down. Don't grumble against the Lord. Not a good idea. So the repetition is not only showing God's provision, but it's showing the danger of grumbling against God. Their grumbling is not lost on God. He repeats it a lot just to make sure that they know he heard it. Then verses 13 and 14, this miraculous provision is recorded. The bread's described. There's no natural explanation. There have been scholars who've come up with strange explanations of how this was some sort of sap from a bush. But there's no way that any of that supplies the quantities needed or meets the characteristics described about manna. At any rate, uh, when the people see it, there's actually a funny scene in verse 15 because they look at it and say, what is it? And that becomes its name, manna, which means, what is it? You know, later it's going to get exalted names. The bread of heaven, the bread of life, the bread of God, the bread provided. But right now, it's just, what is it? And that's what they call it for 40 years. What's for breakfast? What is it? (laughs) Now, a word of advice to all of the children. When mom serves you something, do not say this. What is it? Dad, maybe I'll get away with that, but you won't. Okay, just don't go there. That's a freebie. <laughs> the children of Israel don't recognize the Lord's provision. And Moses has to tell them, this is the bread. This is the Lord's provision. This is what God's given you. And he instructs them to take it and gather it uh, as much as they need per person, per tent. And we're told that God has fulfilled his promise. They have everything they need, no more, no less, just what they need. And that provision comes by uh, his hand. And then Moses says, take a daily supply. This is actually the first part of the test. And some disregard this commandment and they try to take even more. And when it's left overnight, it gets essentially maggot infested. And so they have to uh, obey God and trust God uh, every single day for daily bread. That provision comes from God. It has to be collected in accordance with his word. What a better way to teach that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You've got to collect the manna according to every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the Lord is discipling them, teaching them about his wisdom and his providence and his provision and the need to obey him day by day. So that's the food part. But what about the rest part? God doesn't just want them to know that they need rest, but he wants to disciple them in the practice of rest. In Exodus 16, verse 23, is the first use of the word Sabbath in the Old Testament. Now, you're familiar with the commandment, fourth commandment about a Sabbath? Yeah, that's not for four more chapters. 
So we're getting Sabbath and law in advance of the Sabbath law. And it's directly tied to this lesson about the manna. Moses gives the people very clear instructions, starting at verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Essentially the fourth commandment, four chapters early. It's remarkable. Six days a week, there's manna in the morning. And uh, if an Israelite gathered extra, it went bad. But on the sixth day, they were to gather enough for two days and it was preserved. So six days, they have to believe that God would provide. And one day they had to gather more, believing that God would again be true to his word. Every week, day after day, Israel has to live by faith. They have to believe that God would provide for their needs, that obeying God's instructions was necessary for life, and that intentional rest is not a waste of time. Every week, through the provision of manna, they learn how to depend on God. Now, we're going to look at the Sabbath, the whole concept of the Sabbath, much more when we get to the Ten Commandments, which is not for a long time because we're kind of going to skip it uh, now and then come back to it and go through it in detail later. Um, But I want to highlight here, God's making the Sabbath part of regular life. It's a reminder that life is not about collecting, baking, and storing manna. Instead, manna is supposed to be something that points God's people back to himself. God's provision is designed to meet his people's needs while reminding them about their need for him. The combination of manna and the Sabbath sends a clear message. God is able to meet your needs. Or to put it another way, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So how does this connect to us today? I mean, we don't go out in the morning and find manna on the lawn. But there are some things I think God wants to teach us about himself. A few things to think about. One, the ultimate need in the human heart is to know God. Manna or money feel pressing and uh, urgent, but neither food or finances really satisfy. Provisions are met to point us to God. No wonder Jesus called himself the bread of life. said he came down from heaven to give life to the world. It's only through Jesus we can experience real satisfaction for our hunger. Two, God's still the provider of everything, whether it's manna or money or grace. When the Apostle Paul talked about the joy of generosity and the risk connected to giving, he said this, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And then third, the Sabbath and generosity are expressions of your faith. The challenge for Israel is the challenge for us. Do you believe that God will provide for you? Do you believe that he cares for you? Do you believe that the God who delivers is the God who provides? Then, intentional, worshipful rest combined with intentional giving are how we affirm that truth. By resting and giving, we say, God, I know that working all the time 
and hoarding stuff and hoarding money will never give me the security that comes from knowing you. Therefore, I choose to rest and I choose to give. Manna is the starting point for the lesson that people should never make the daily pursuit of meeting their own needs the single driving passion of their life. Manna is given to feed their stomachs and their souls. Manna reminds us that God can be trusted each and every day. Lamentations 3 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. God is saying to us here and everywhere in Scripture, I'm the one you need. And I have set apart one day in seven that built into the rhythm of your life would be a time of fellowship with me where I might meet you and you might find the satisfaction that your heart craves. Now, I suspect that the practice of rest is missing from the rhythm of many of our lives, particularly in Northern Virginia. We go, 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 pursuing more, more money, more fun, more time. And the irony is the faster we run, the less we seem to have. Less money, less fun, less time, less margin. And I think that's true. And our joy begins to crumble. We're pursuing satisfaction. It eludes us. And our text is saying, you know, all of that is unnecessary. God has set apart Sunday as the Lord's day. And he's asking you to trust him for the rest. Keep his day holy and he'll provide. God is no debtor. Order your life so you're free to keep the Lord's day. You're free to worship. You're free to pray and to praise and to hear the preaching of God's word. And this is a way to honor God with your time. And you'll discover when you begin to trust him in this, he really will provide. And those who keep his word and trust him discover again and again that rare jewel of Christian contentment in the practice of rest. So finally, we get to the last lesson, which is the preservation of memory. It's not about dementia. Well, in some ways it is. It's about a cultural dementia, a church-wide dementia. Starting at verse 31, the preservation of memory. Now the house of Israel called its name manna, which means what is it? It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And then an omer is the tenth part of an ephah. You knew that. Now we discover here, the people eat manna in the wilderness all the way through their journey until they reach the promised land where all of a sudden it stops because God's finally brought them home. God's provision for them won't run out. His mercy and grace are new every morning. And Moses is told, take steps to make sure that Israel never forgets. He's to preserve an omar of the manna that's about two quarts, half gallon, in a jar that's going to be preserved throughout Israel's generations and keep it in the presence of God. It would become sort of a national memorial of God's saving provision and the abundance of his grace, reminding them you can trust him. He will provide. Order your life according to his word and see how he meets your need. This manna never went bad. It's preserved through the generations. And Aaron would eventually uh, place it before the Ark of the Covenant within the tabernacle that the Lord's going to have them build. The point's not complicated. God wants his people never to forget that his grace is sufficient, that his strength is made perfect in weakness. If you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. Your Father in heaven knows what you need. 
God will sustain all whom he saves. He will feed those he frees. God has given us reminders of his unfailing love and commitment to not only delivering us from sin's bondage, but to sustaining us and feeding us. Think about the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They serve that function. They function as means of grace designed to bring the word of God that's come to us in the preaching of Scripture and bring it to our eyes and our hands and our mouths to physically bring the gospel home with new power. The sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are there to underscore and highlight and proclaim the good news that God saves, that his grace is enough, that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he is sufficient for us. And as we trust him and as we cling to his promises, he feeds us and nourishes us. And as you handle the bread and the cup and you come to the table of the Lord, you have a more powerful reminder than Israel did in that jar of manna. Because the uh, elements that you handle and taste speak so clearly to the true bread of heaven. The greatest provision God has ever given for his people's need, from which every other blessing of his grace flows to us, the cross of Jesus Christ, his body broken, his blood shed, the provision for us in John chapter 6, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You knew we'd get to Jesus sooner or later. So turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. I want to show you a passage where Jesus had a very interesting exchange with some people in his day. In John 6, starting at verse 26, Jesus is talking to a group of people who've become interested in his ministry because they saw him feed 5,000 people. The feeding of the 5,000 just happened. Now, Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 is intended to indicate that he's God in the flesh, providing for the needs of his people, and so they start to question him about it. And Jesus realizes they're interested because of the miracle. It says there, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Well, they've pretty much ignored this, and they immediately go back to the miracle. So in verse 28 we read, They said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? They want to be able to do miracles too. So he replies, verse 29, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. You want to do the works of God? Trust in me. That's what you do. Trust me. Put your faith in me as the Messiah. So they respond again, verse 30. Then what sign do you do? He just fed 5,000 people like 15 minutes ago. But if you could do a miracle, this actually happens three times in the gospel. He does a miracle and they say, but if only you would do a miracle. And you, know, it's just, you just want to slap. It, I, I find that one of the most amazing things in the gospel. They can witness a miracle and say, but if you could give us a miracle. It happens all the time. So they say, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So basically, say, if you want us to believe that you're the Messiah, you're going to have to come up with a sign. Because, you know, after all, the feeding of the 5,000 you just did, yeah, that doesn't count. We didn't understand that. So you're going to have to do something else. After all, our father gave the sign of bread of heaven in the wilderness that he was the one who provided for us. So what are you going to do? Now, my guess is that was probably not the right thing to say to the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's his response, verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Of course, that's precisely Moses' own interpretation in Deuteronomy 8, which we read earlier, that God provided. Jesus isn't coming up with some new and novel interpretation. He's coming up with precisely the interpretation that Moses himself has given. 
And so he says, verse 33, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Here comes the thunderbolt. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is saying, I am. Do you remember that from somewhere? I am. I am that bread. I am something greater than the manna in the wilderness. I am the bread of God. Whoever trusts in me, whoever believes in me, he or she will have life forevermore. God provides, and in return you will do what? You will believe or you will grumble because you will pick one. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you once again. You have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Lord, we confess how easily we're dissatisfied, how we fear that you will not provide, that your promises will fail, how our unbelief generates dissatisfaction and a grumbling spirit. Father, forgive us. Thank you that you're so patient with us, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, even when we're confused and complaining and doubting and grumbling. You are constant and sure, merciful and gracious, teaching us to trust you and meeting our needs. Heavenly Father, you have provided the bread of heaven, not just something miraculous for your people in the wilderness a long time ago, not just a sign of Jesus' divinity when he fed the 5,000, but you have permanently provided for the needs of your people in Jesus Christ. Grant that we would trust your word and that we would trust him. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. I won't be here uh, next week. Uh, Joanne and I are chaperoning a uh, high school trip to China, and uh, hopefully we'll be back in time for Easter. So we'll see. If we don't come back, you know something went wrong. But pray for us. Hear God's blessing again from John chapter 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. God bless you. See you in a couple weeks.